Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Good morning, everyone. Let's see if this. All right, here we go. Sermon on the Mount. So, um, for you people who are visiting, I am not the regular teacher in this church. Bob Corbin is our our senior preaching uh, preaching our senior preaching pastor, senior teaching pastor, and he is out of town in uh, Pittsburgh this weekend. Um, he'll be back next weekend. Um, we have been doing a series through Matthew. We're only a few weeks into it. We've come to chapter 5 today, starting the Sermon on the Mount. And we're doing, I don't have it at my fingertips, but I think at least six, maybe seven weeks, we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, as first me and then Bob for the rest of the, of the messages teaching through uh, this sermon. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background if you... We're here, so it has been, because of family camp, and then Bob, Steve, and I all being out the last week of August, it has been three weeks back when, we, when Bob was teaching through the end of Matthew 4. From what Chuck read this morning, if you back up just a little bit into Matthew 4, verse 17 says that from that time, and this is after, G, so... Earlier in Matthew 4, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and he's tempted. And then after that, he leaves Nazareth, settles in Capernaum. And verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he calls his first disciples who leave their fishing careers and they follow him. And in verse 23 of Matthew 4, Scripture says, And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Per verse 23, he's going around Galilee and all of its towns speaking in the synagogues. But people are flocking to him from all of that surrounding region. Decapolis is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jerusalem and Judea are down to the south. And when it says beyond the Jordan, it means the southern portions opposite Judea that are below Decapolis. So from If you picture in your mind or you flip to the back of your Bible to look at a Bible map, all of that region from the top of the Sea of Galilee in the north all the way down to Jerusalem, people are hearing about this man and what he's saying and doing in Galilee, and they're flocking up there to see him. And many are bringing their relatives that are sick or ill or demon-possessed, and according to verse 24, he's healing them, everyone that they're bringing to him. Well, for me, as I read Matthew 4, and I'm speaking just for me, but when 23 says he's going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and you can see a similar thing, by the way, over in Mark 1, saying he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I am left at the end of Matthew 4 going, what is he saying? Tell me this message that he's giving. And that's where we are here in, uh, at this point as we go into Matthew 5, Matthew has set it up where for the reader you're wanting to hear what is this good news of the kingdom that he's preaching. And so Matthew is going to give us, I think, a complete message. It reads like a complete message of Jesus's. Um, and, and it's likely something that he taught as he's going through all the towns. Um, I'll give you... a a verse to back up uh, that last bullet in a, on the next slide, in, in a couple slides. But um, it, politicians today in America, if they're in campaign season and they go around from place to place giving what's called the stump speech, we only hear the sound bites, you know, where they throw in something new. 
But if you were to hear a politician speak in one location and then follow him and hear him in the next location, it's usually about 90% the same. They're saying because it's a different audience, but they're saying the same message. Um, itinerant evangelists who go around leading revivals and teaching in churches or, or Christian schools, places like that, they usually have at a given time in their life, say the season of a six-month period, they have five to ten go-to messages. You know, they're all, all usually always developing another message as God's laying things on their hearts. But they have a set of messages, and when they teach for three or four nights, they use these messages, what God has laid on their heart, but it's a new audience when they change town, so they're using the same illustrations and all of that. And, and Jesus is God. He could be brand new every single time. But he's also human speaking to humans. So just think about it. If God is going to bring the truth to the people in Nazareth and then the people in Capernaum and then the people in the next city and the next city and the next city, is it going to change much? Not while it's being given out. There may be something new and fresh they haven't heard that's going to come down the road when they hear him a second time. But I really think uh, he's probably teaching much of this same message in all of these towns and synagogues. And Matthew records one instance of it for us. So if you ever wondered, what is the good news of the kingdom that he's teaching? This is it, I think. Okay. So... Uh, verse 1 says, he saw the multitudes and he went up on the mountain. This is a picture that uh, Chuck took when he and Karen were uh, over in Israel, what, last year, Chuck? Uh, middle one, there we go. Give you. <laughs> we'll leave the light off for a minute. So there you can see it. Chuck, you want to talk about this for a minute? This is, uh, so you can see here, that's the, that's the very top of the Sea of Galilee, so we're at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, uh, kind of in a little cutout of it, uh, looking back towards Tiberias is down over here. And so this, I'm standing on the, a porch of a, of a Catholic church, which is the Church of the Beatitudes. So the Catholic Church has built a number of churches around that part of the Sea of Galilee to commemorate uh, certain events in, in the scripture. So we don't know exactly where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, but um, up here in the corner is, is Mount Arbel. And so that's a, I think that's the highest point anywhere around the entire Sea of Galilee. So there's not mountains, per se, in this part of Israel. That's about the highest point. I don't know that that's particularly high. And I think, David, the Greek word mountain there, when I looked this morning, could just mean a hill, an elevated spot, a place like that. So, But one of the things they told us when we were there is that the acoustics in this part of, of Galilee on these hillsides are pretty unique in that a person standing where I'm taking this picture from uh, could ap apparently speak and be heard for quite a distance. Now, again, it's kind of analogous, uh, kind of related to what the point you just made. Jesus is God, so does he need any kind of uh, special uh, acoustics of that area to speak and be heard by a large multitude? Or is he, in fact, just teaching the disciples? Maybe you're going to touch upon that. But it is kind of interesting that they, they say that if you do that, you can actually be heard all the way down these hillsides along the Sea of Galilee. And it obviously would provide a large place for a lot of people to gather uh, the geography of that area. So... It was kind of uh, interesting that it was probably somewhere in this vicinity, but, of course, we don't know exactly where it could have been. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate that. Everybody's lights on. Okay. So, um, if, you've, if you've ever been out in the mountains, uh, sound carries really well across a valley. You can be on one side and hear people on the other side. Not so well if you're on opposite sides of the mountain. So... We don't know if it was in view of the, the Sea of Galilee at the time or, or how high the mountain was, but clearly he went up what was a, rel a mountain relative to where they were, and it was likely in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee. It could have been inland a few miles. Ga uh, Galilee overall went from there all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. But it was something like this, with or without the lake in sight. And, and Jesus goes up the mountain... And his disciples came to him. 
So just as a little bit more background, the subject is going to be the good news of the kingdom. I take that from Matthew 4.23. He's going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That word gospel, Bob has a couple of times in the last month talked about how the English word gospel comes from God's spell. And it has to do with when the, gospel, when, when the good news of Christ first reached England uh, back in the, in the Middle Ages, or maybe even the Dark Ages, that, um, that uh, people who did not yet believe in Christ were seeing people turn to Christ and were saying they were under a God spell. And so gospel got coined from that, and when the Bible was translated into English, that's what was used for good news. Now, without knowing the English word gospel, if you just translate it into German or some other language, you'd say whatever's the German equivalent of good news. If it says gospel, that's a transliteration of the English, not a translation of what's um, actually in the Greek. So when we see, when you read in your English Bible, see the word gospel, it's totally fine to stick in good news. And it's not always when gospel is used there or the word in the Greek for good news, it's not always the how you become a Christian that we're used to. That's very valid use of the term gospel and Paul lays it out for us in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, this is the gospel which I received, and he goes through it. But in the New Testament usage, keep in mind it means good news. So at this point, when it says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in verse 23, Jesus is not necessarily at all saying exactly what Paul, after Christ's death and resurrection, says over in 1 Corinthians 15. He's giving them good news of the kingdom, which is going to include relationship with God and, and how you live for God. But he's probably not, for instance, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that, um, that Christ rose and first ap- appeared to, um, to the twelve, to Cephas, and then the twelve, and then to eventually 500 others. You know, Jesus isn't saying that. So just think that. Good news. He's giving them the good news of the kingdom. It's on a, low, on a mountain in Galilee. I said that already. His audience, so his audience, Chuck touched briefly on this. Scripture says his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them. So his primary audience is his disciples, and this is more than the twelve. So secondary audience would be whoever's listening further out, which would be the multitude. But if you look in Luke 6... I want to point out two things from Luke 6. Luke 6 is um, also after the first disciples are called and start following him. Luke 5 has a similar account of Simon Peter and and his friends leaving their boats and following Jesus. In Luke 6 verse 12, Scripture says that it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Jesus had a lot more disciples following him than just the 12. And so on the Sermon on the Mount, it's all of whoever's following him that are, that are really following him. They're not just coming to see a show. They're not just curious. But the ones who have heard and are really following, trying to learn from him, more than the 12. So there, it, this is... a. Uh, Painting, it's interesting, this looks somewhat similar if you take the people out of it to your picture. This is a, a painting that's in the Brooklyn Museum from 1890. Um, but his disciples would have gathered in close, and then you would have the throngs of the multitude spread out going on down the hillside. If I continue in Luke 6, I want to point out one other thing to you. In verse... 19, all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And in verse 20, uh, oh, wait, wait, I skipped something important. After the list, I'm, I'm in Luke 6, after the list of, his, of the 12 apostles that he chose from the larger group of disciples, verse 17 says, and he descended with them and stood on a level place. So geographically, does this sound like the same thing as Matthew 5? He descended with them and stood on a level place. So you're comparing that to Matthew 5.1, when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. So this is a different time. 
He's gone up to a mountain, he's prayed, he's chosen the twelve, and then he descends with them to a level place. And a great multitude of his disciples were there. There again, you have way more people than just the twelve that he chooses as apostles. Great multitude of disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. That throng of people would be a multitude, but they're on a level place. He's not up on a mountain now. And in verse 20... Your Bible may even have a caption from an editor that says the Beatitudes. In verse 20, he starts giving some blesseds. And he gives three blesseds that are very similar to what we're going to see in Matthew 5. And then he gives three woes, and then he says other stuff, some of which is in the Sermon on the Mount and some of which isn't. But my point there is that he's saying some of the same things, but he's varying it some as he teaches in different places to different groups of people. And meanwhile, his disciples are following along. So, anyway, back over in Matthew 5. Um, I'm going to give you a quick outline. This is my outline. I haven't really coordinated closely with Bob, but it follows close to what Bob plans to teach on, except it's going to be over six to seven weeks, and I didn't have room to give you seven lines here, so it's four. (laughs) So, the people of the kingdom is what these first 16 verses are about. In one way or another, Jesus, different verses hit on different things, but he's teaching on what the people of the kingdom will experience, what character traits the people of the kingdom have, and who the people of the kingdom are in regard to impacting the world. So I'm calling that the people of the kingdom. 17 through 48 of this chapter, he's going to talk about true righteousness. And uh, a a sub-bullet to that would be that it's impossible for you to keep on your own. He says at the start, near the start of that in verse 20, that if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6 is about practicing and pursuing righteousness And a subtitle to that would be, it's internal, not external. It's all about the heart. And Jesus is going to give stuff in there about not doing your righteous acts to be seen by other people. That doesn't mean they won't see you do righteous acts, but that's not your motive. Your motive is to do it for God. So it's a matter of the heart. And then chapter 7, he gets into practical standards of the kingdom that includes a couple of things related to, um, to, to truly being a child of God. We would bring other, other verses from Scripture into it, but it's in chapter 7 where we find out about the narrow gate. The narrow gate is what leads to life. And it's in chapter 7 where Jesus talks about, I never knew you, when he's telling people that say words that sound good but are really practicing wickedness. He tells them to leave, depart from me. And a key phrase in there is, I never knew you. If you take that narrow gate and connect it with knowing Jesus, you've got the essence of the gospel right there. Okay, so back to five. Um, We call this the Beatitudes. Who knows who Cicero is? Anybody? So I've had a lot of knowledge go in this head and out. I had forgotten this, but this is interesting. Cicero... um, lived from about 106 B.C. until 46 B.C. He was a peer of Julius Caesar. Where do you know Julius Caesar from? Shakespeare wrote a play. Well, he was a real guy. And in fact, for those of you who have watched Star Wars, and you have the Republic versus the Empire, that comes from these guys. Cicero was a big advocate of the Roman Republic and keeping it as a republic. Julius Caesar was the first dictator and the start of turning it into the empire which seized lands and peoples against their will. That's where Star Wars gets it from. It's real history. Anyway, Cicero is credited with being the one who took Latin, the Roman language, and turned it from uh, just a pedestrian good enough language for communication into a a language on par with Greek. And he's also credited with being a great orator and letter writer. He came up with a lot of the Latin words. I don't know Latin. But in Latin, he he coined this term beatudo, or however you say it, which means state of blessedness. One of the words he came up with. And uh, 
by the time the Bible was translated from Greek to Latin under the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church, uh, beati- beatitude became beat- beatitudes in, uh, when it was translated, transliterated into English. So this is the word used in the Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible. And when it was translated from Latin into English, they transliterated, which, which means you're not translating the meaning of the word, you're just sort of like baptism. You know, baptizo, when we read that in the Bible, it should be to dip or dunk. But for various reasons of historical, various historical reasons, it's been transliterated so that it leaves the meaning for lots of interpretation and arguing. Um, but that's where we get um, beatitudes, and it means means blessed. The Greek word is this one, and you know, I study the I study Greek and Hebrew by the numbers. I don't know Greek and Hebrew. Come back next week to hear Bob. If you want to hear someone who knows Greek and Hebrew, but. Number 3107, it means blessed, happy, prosperous. And I want to point out to you, uh, just as an overview, that there's nine total blesseds in verse 5 to 12. They all express facts in the kingdom that are opposite to how we normally think. But Jesus is saying them as facts. So for you as a believer and follower of Christ, one thing to be asking yourself is, do I really believe that? He's stating them as facts. They present a progression of experience and character traits for kingdom people. Now, on this one, there's nine of them. Jesus never says, as he's teaching this, that number two follows after number one. Number three comes after number two. Number four comes out of the bunch that came before. You can't have number five if you don't have one to four. He doesn't do that. I have heard people speak on there being a progression where they see it. I think there's a progression. I think Jesus does them in a logical order. So I'm going to touch on that some as I go through here. But I also want to say that there are nine things that he says are facts for kingdom people. And I think it's okay when you need to, to take one and use it, to take another and use it. You don't have to understand it as a progression, okay? For instance, I had a coworker at work a few months ago who um, uh, was telling me about their family dog die- was go- was going to be put down. It was about to die, and he was wrestling with how's he going to tell his kids. And I told him, "Share this verse: Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Now, you know, talking to his kids, he's not going to go into any kind of progression or anything, but. I, I, I just want to throw that out there. These are nine things he says. You can view it as they build upon one another, or you cannot. But you need to view them as things that Jesus says are true for people in the kingdom. Um, okay. So we've got a bunch of them. What I'm going to do here, I, 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 can't, I can't teach comprehensively through all of this. People, uh, there are, are people you hear on the radio uh, if you listen to 91.7, who have given series where they spend a whole message on each one of these verses. I don't have that much time. So I am going to share with you some of the highlights that came out of my study, okay? And uh, on the notes, I don't have fill-in-the-blank stuff there. I've just got a room where you can write in whatever God lays on your heart as I go through this. I'm going to just kind of bebop along and share highlights on this for these first 12 verses. So, poor, the, the Greek word being used here for poor, it's important to know this is not just normal poor. There's another Greek word for that, and that's used of the, the woman um, who has the two copper coins and puts them all in. Uh, you read that in Luke where Jesus says she gave more than everybody else because she gave 100%. He didn't say 100%, but she gave everything. Okay, that word is a different word for poor, which just means you don't have much, but you may have something. This is a, is a uh, over-the-top word for poor, and it means destitute, bankrupt, reduced to begging. I saw some stuff about it actually meaning begging in a, ca- in a kind of cowardly way where you're kind of in the corner afraid of how people are going to react to you. Um, uh, it's a very humble, destitute, totally empty type of poor is what this means. And, and so poor in spirit means that you're spiritually bankrupt. You're empty. 
You're not spiritually arrogant. You're spiritually humble. And I think this one comes first because um, salvation begins with humility before God. Uh, In these two verses, we're told God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in our trespasses. I'm going to be using my phone here a little bit so I can hop quickly to some of these passages. We're told that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then later in that chapter, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Um, Spiritually, we start out with God dead, empty. He has to quicken us. That's what the new birth is all about, being born again, born from above, born of the Spirit where He gives us spiritual life. No one comes to Christ in pride. No one comes thinking that God's got to take them because I fill in the blank. No no one comes uh, thinking really that they're adding to the kingdom. You don't have anything that God needs. But He loves you. He has everything that you need. So we don't come to Christ in arrogance. We come in humility. Um, the, the word spirit is pneuma in the, in the Greek, and it means spirit, the vital principle by which your body is animated. Uh, some of the definitions that I looked at overlap with soul, which is a different Greek word, psyche. Uh, the soul differs from the body uh, in that it's not dissolved by death. That makes sense. But the soul also differs from the spirit. Um, Let's see. I give you a couple of these in the Old Testament because there's a similar thing going on in the Old Testament where you have a different word for soul, different word for spirit. So in 1 Thess 5.23, actually, I want to, it's not up here, but I want to tell you something that was kind of cool from these Old Testament words. So I'm sure you are familiar with Genesis and the use of the word soul there. Genesis 2 verse 7 when God creates Adam, says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Let me back up here. That's this word nephesh for soul. That's the Hebrew word for soul, translated in the New King James as a living being. But that's, that's soul, and you see that in other places. In Lamentations chapter 3, Verse 24, Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. That's nephesh. Spirit, I came across one interesting one that's in Exodus. And I wanted to share this with you because you may relate to this. And as we go through the rest of these Beatitudes, you might be able to connect it. God may connect it for you with... with, uh, something that really meets where you are. It depends on your situation. But in Exodus 6, verse uh, 9, Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. If you want to get the background, you'll have to go over there. But the children of Israel are complaining. Uh, And this this is after Pharaoh took away their straw, but said they still had to make just as many bricks. So it's before all the plagues, they're in slavery in Egypt. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. That term, anguish of spirit, is this word, ruach. And in this usage here, it literally means uh, shortness of spirit. I thought that was interesting. Uh, In other translations, it's translated as despondency. So anguish of spirit, despondency, literally it's from shortness of spirit. Now, this hopefully will help make that make a little bit more sense. In 1 Thess 5.23, we're told right here in the middle of this line that we have a spirit, soul, and body. Paul is praying here that God will preserve you, spirit, whole preserve you, your whole spirit, soul, and body. Bob has talked about this. I'm just going to summarize real quickly. We have a body. We have a soul. Plants have bodies. 
We have a soul. Animals have a soul. The soul is the seat of what we call the heart, the mind, the intellect, the emotions. The heart, really, in biblical usage, is all of that combined, uh, the whole core of your being. But then we have a spirit. And when Bob talks about that, he says with the soul, you can see animals have emotions and they communicate. But animals don't have a spirit. You don't see any evidence of them worshiping God in some fashion. Humans have inherently, because of having a spirit, a desire to know God. And you see that throughout history and throughout all types of people groups. They're not necessarily worshiping the true God, but they have some concept of God and they're trying to find God, pursue God in some form. That's because humans, of all of creation, are created in the image of God. We have a spirit. Now, what I want to add to that that might help make sense a little bit here is that your soul interacts with the world through your body. Your body has the five senses. And so your soul is interacting with all of what we think of as reality, time, space, and matter, through the body and its senses. I think that the same thing is true on the other end. Our soul interacts with the spiritual world through our spirit. God has given us a spirit. Now, because of original sin, because of Adam's sin, we have a spirit, but we're dead to God. And so our soul, which longs for God, has a God-sized hole. We're designed to be fulfilled by God, but it doesn't click. It's a dead end. It's like the switch being off. No light. And it doesn't mean you don't have a spirit. Your spirit's just dead to God. You can allow other spirits to come in the demonic world. That's their entry point to the spirit, your spirit, into your soul. If I go back to this uh, uh, Ephesians verse, we are dead in our sins. And then what happens? Ephesians 2, verse 1, I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. And then in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive, born again, the new birth. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. What's new about that creature? The spirit has come alive to God. And you can now relate. Your soul, which is desiring God, can relate to him now and know him and be known by him because your spirit is alive to him. So anyway, back to that Exodus thing, despondency, anguish of spirit. It literally is shortness of spirit. Needing God. So. Um, all of that was poor in spirit. They're going to see the kingdom of God. Um, I'm going to move on. Mourn. So this word mourn in Greek occurs ten times in the New Testament. Now the question here is what are we mourning about? Some people teach that this is mourning only over sin. Some people use this verse as if it only means mourning over lost loved ones. Well, with only ten occurrences of it, one of which is verse 4 here, uh, we can take a quick little study and it turns out... I've All nine of them break into three categories. All nine, not counting verse 4 here, um, break out into three categories. Mourning over a loss of a loved one. Makes sense. Mourning over a lost lifestyle or wealth. People can grieve over how life has changed in a way they don't like. And then mourning over sin. So I want to put before you that all three are valid. And for people who are in the kingdom, there is the promise that you will be comforted. Now, if you look in your Bibles, uh, come to this in a minute, but if you look in the Bibles, one thing about these Beatitudes that I meant to say and forgot is that the second part of what you get in that blessed for all nine of them All of the blesseds are present tense continuing. Blessed are such and such. The promise of what's going to come is present tense for blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's present tense for the eighth one down in verse 10 on persecution. Theirs is also the kingdom of heaven. 
For the rest of them, they are future tense. So these are, you're blessed in the present, in this condition, let's take mourning, where the promise of the relief or the reward or the change to happen, the experience to come, is in the future. That doesn't mean you won't experience it here on this earth. But if you're in the middle of mourning, you don't feel comforted at all. But there's a promise there that it's coming. And by the way, this is not just a normal grieving process where people get over things. That's a worldly view. Paul talks about we grieve with hope because we believe in the resurrection. We believe in life eternal. We don't believe the way, I mean, we don't grieve the way that non-believers grieve. All right, so let's see. Mourning is closely associated with sorrow. Also on the, on the value of um, how we mourn over sin, this, this, this would apply, and it flows in a logical order. If you're poor in spirit and you come to know Jesus as your Savior and He, and, and he enters your life, then you're going to mourn over sin and then be comforted because you've been forgiven, right? Well, for now, as you a believer, as you are a believer and you're trying to live for Christ, you may mess up sometimes, and that's the situation of 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow of the world doesn't lead to life, but godly sorrow that leads to repentance and getting right with Him leads to life and to salvation. Okay. Um, Comforted. Oh, the reason this is up here, I thought this was pretty cool. One of the meanings of comforted is to call to one side, to come alongside, to comfort. So Job's friends, they didn't end up doing a good job. But I think of the picture where they come and they're just there for seven days, just being there. Um, this word is uh, very closely related to... There, there's, in Greek, you'll have, similar to English, you'll have nouns, adjectives, verbs that are all related. And so comfort and comforted and comforter are all closely related Greek words. And one of the other closely related ones is the one used of the Holy Spirit in John 14, where he is the helper, the comforter. And there you have a beautiful picture of coming alongside, because after the resurrection, for us as believers, he comes and dwells in us. Can't get any closer. Can't get any closer. Um, On meek. Meek is four times in the New Testament, or the Greek word is, and in the New King James, in the New King James, it's translated only this one time as meek. It's gentle to others and lowly in one other. In some of the other translations, it's gentle all four times. I think we get meek carried forward in our in like the New King James from the Old King James. In the Old King James, all four of these cases are translated meek. That was a more common use of the word for them back then. But it means, it means meek, meek means gentle. It means to, in a, in a spiritual sense, it means to trust God and His sovereignty that He's going to take care of you. And so there's not a need to watch out for number one. There's not a need to grasp and claw and fight for what should be yours. You're trusting in Him to take care of you And so you can let some things go. You don't have to strive like the non-believers of the world. You don't have to strive the way you and I, even as believers, would do if we forget that we have a Father who takes care of us. Um, Righteousness. Okay, so let's back up. Hunger, I'm on verse, verse 6 now. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know what hunger and thirst means. You even in a metaphorical sense where you're not talking about food and drink, you know what it is to strongly long for something. We have terms in our society like hunger for justice, thirst for revenge. It's a longing for something. Well, in this case, Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness is what God says is right, and it's the condition that makes you acceptable to God, a condition acceptable to God. I thought this was really neat. I came across this. 
it's, this guy said, it's the state of him who is as he ought to be. I thought that was really cool. We're created in the image of God. Adam was in a state of righteousness before they ate from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and, good and evil. Adam was in a state as he ought to be. We're not in that state until we meet Christ and he changes us. But when we are changed, again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. Our speaker, see if I have these up here. Yeah, our, um, well, this is a different one, but in Romans 14, 17, Paul says, uh, don't let what would be good for you be spoken of evil. This is in the context of talking about liberty and uh, about making concessions for the sake of other believers instead of demanding what you perceive to be your rights. And he goes on to say, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy by the Holy Spirit. So our speaker, um, this past week at family camp, he talked about our identity in Christ where we have... um, we have been crucified in Christ, Galatians 2.20, is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And another verse he used is coming up in a minute. Let me just go to that. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, God made, for he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, righteousness of God in Jesus. And this one that I had a minute ago also talks about if you're in Christ Jesus, Jesus is the who. Jesus became for us salvation, no, wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ takes our sins, and through him we are given his righteousness. We're given God's righteousness. And that makes us into a state that is as we ought to be, restored to God's original intention. When you sin, you either don't want to be around God and His people, or as the Holy Spirit convicts you, you repent at some point, confess your sin to God, and cry out to Him like David in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart. Restore to me a steadfast spirit. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Now, with New Testament verses, we know once you're a believer, God's not going to take the Holy Spirit away from you. But it's the same kind of reaction. I'm sorry. Clean me up. We know that we have, because of that sin, which could be a pattern over a little bit of time where we're resisting God, we know that we call it being out of fellowship. We go through dry periods. And until we deal with that sin, we're not in a state as what we ought to be. That's what we see. Positionally, if you're a Christian, you have the righteousness of God. But in your experience, you know this is not right, not the case. Something's out of kilter. And as the Holy Spirit convicts me, I know what's out of kilter. It's that thing I did. Or it's that thing I failed to do. So... The great promise here is if I'm hungering and thirsting from righteousness, Jesus says that kind of person will be filled. And I just wanted to show you this part. To fill, the word means to fill or satisfy. It's also used of animals like if you want to fatten up a cow. So you're giving them all that they can consume, all that they are willing to eat, all that they can take. And I just thought it was it's so neat. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness... When God says you shall be filled, he's saying basically have all that you want. It's not going to run out. There's more here than you can consume. I thought that was kind of cool. Hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will be filled. There's enough to go around and God's going to give it to you through Christ. Um, At this point, I quit doing PowerPoint was tired of that. Thought you might be tired of it too. Uh, I, I just want to share a couple of things, and then I want to ask a question. I am going to come to this one in a minute. 
pardon me where I sync up here, pure in heart, uh, I think you know, you know what that means. If you, have, if you have an impurity, if I had a glass of water here and put a little dirt in it and asked you, did you want it, stirred it up good, it's just a little bit of dirt. You wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want to drink it because it's not pure. That's a great illustration, simple illustration. Pure in heart means a heart that doesn't have impurities. It's not spotted and stained by things that displease God. The pure in heart are going to see God. Um, On heart, uh, we're going to get into this later in the Sermon on the Mount, but when I practice my righteousness, God cares about the heart. Am I doing it for him or am I doing it for somebody else or so that somebody thinks something about me? Uh, In Matthew 6.21, he says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A pure heart is not going to be distracted by the wealth of the world. You've got to guard. In, the, in our world, with consumerism and materialism, you, you have to actively be on your guard because the principle there is if something starts to become your treasure, your heart's going to be pulled that way. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So you've got to be careful what your treasure is. In Matthew 15, Jesus talks about the heart. He says that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. And he lists a whole bunch of, of uh, wicked behavior. It's Matthew 15, verse 18 and 19. The heart is where wickedness starts and comes out. In the kingdom, kingdom people are transformed to be pure in heart. And when we're pure in heart, we see God. That's a promise to come, the seeing God. But the experiencing God through him, his spirit working in you, I think there's a, a parallel there. Uh, oh, I forgot. I don't have any more pop-ups. Uh, peacemakers. The key thing I wanted to pass on to you here about peacemakers is that this is not a lover of peace. You can be a lover of peace and retreat from conflict because you want to stay in your own little peaceful world and let others fight something out. A peacemaker is someone who, because of God working in him and caring for other people the way God cares for them, wants to try to foster harmony and union and make peace. A peace, Peacemaking is something that is hard. You have to work at it. And our best example of a peacemaker is actually Jesus, who died on the cross to pay for our sins in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, find that real quick. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, that's referring to Gentiles and, and Jews, making them both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. That's in Ephesians 2. Peacemaking often requires not only hard work, but bring a peacemaker sometimes has to bring his own resources to the table to try to solve a problem for the two people who are at it. And we see that best through Christ, who brings his own resources. He gave his life on the cross for us that we could be forgiven. And I think that is why the peacemaker is called the Son of God. What a beautiful picture. The greatest peacemaker is the Son of God. And if we are peacemakers, we are being like our Father who has adopted us in Christ, and we are sons of God. Um, persecuted for righteousness. These persecution, these last two of the Beatitudes of the Blesseds are slightly different. One is persecuted uh, for the sake of righteousness. You could be persecuted, in theory, for righteousness without people necessarily knowing that you belong to Christ. Um, in just a secular context, there could be someone who has a high standard for justice in our society in America, who pursues bringing justice when wrongdoing happens, but they may not necessarily be a believer. 
They just uh, may have bought into our Constitution and how it works and become a lawyer or prosecuting attorney or something, a DA. Um, But then the second one is specifically persecuted because of Christ. People insult you, persecute you, falsely say evil things about you. That's because they know you are a believer. Now, I think in number 8, back at verse 10, in this context of people of the kingdom, as you, as you are poor in spirit and God brings you into the kingdom as a child of his, you mourn your sin and are comforted. You are humble and meek and gentle. Uh, you start hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is flowing out of your relationship with God that's begun back here. You start becoming merciful Uh, All of these things are building up and then it starts to flow out in terms of how you treat people and how you talk and what you're interested in. That's the righteousness that leads to the persecution in verse 10, whether or not people know that Christ is who's producing that. And then verse 11 and 12, it's clearly Christ that is producing it. Now, at this point, I'm going to do one slide on salt and light in a minute, but I'd like to just stop for a minute and ask you, because I've been going helter-skelter through this, um, what what do you see as a big challenge with these blesseds for you? Chuck. Yeah, so you said two key things. They're not natural to us, and it's because these flow out of the kingdom of God. So in being citizens of the kingdom, our God is working these out in us. But the other thing I liked is you said I've got to keep a laser focus on Christ. What helps you to do that? Okay. Okay. Time in the Word and prayer, things to help you stay tight with God, because you're being bombarded by the world all the time. You know, things, you know, uh, just being at church. I mean, just being with other believers. You know, not forsaking the gathering together. Believers is, is, is the key over the years. Like, you know, or even if you are traveling in your way, you know, today we have so many options. Yeah. For, for Yeah, there's something about relating in person that is what God intended for church, and there's big value of it. In Proverbs, we have uh, one verse about iron sharpening iron. You've got to be right there in close proximity to have that sharpening happen. And then in Hebrews 10, uh, not forsaking our own assembling together, we're supposed to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And there's definite value in being with some group of believers on a regular basis so that we're encouraged in that way. Uh, who else? Something from the Beatitudes, Brian. Um, three things, recognition, action, and then, and then obedience to what you learn. Um, case in point, for the Spirit. It, that, that brought to mind me about the guy, there was a guy at Walmart that, that was asking, begging for money. Whether he was true or not, that's different. But for my action, it should have been to share the love of Christ with him, maybe buy him some groceries, and find out where he's at in life. And I didn't hmm. recognize it, didn't act on it, and um, wasn't obedient to it. So 
And all of that goes back to what Chuck was saying is knowing the knowing the commandments, knowing what God wants you to do, recognize it and acting on it. And that's what we have to do to figure out where those in line with our life. Yeah. So your three were recognition, action, and obedience. I like that. And that can flow negatively or positively. You can put knots in there, which was the example that you're sharing. Yeah, John. Really comes from we're always I always find myself busy moving from one thing to the next and it's really important for me to be still to be still and just recognize that I'm here for a different purpose than to get all these things done. Ultimately I'm an ambassador for Christ and that should be my primary focus. But it's easy to forget that unless you're still and whether that's meditating on God's word while you're driving to work or reading the Bible, just taking that moment to center yourself and remind yourself why you're there and what your purpose is, yeah. not to run around and do stuff, but to serve the kingdom of God. Yeah, that can be a, a great value of a daily quiet time or devotional time is setting that, that purpose for the day or getting that reminder. And, and until you do that, you can't, it's hard to hear that still small voice of saying, hey, you need to go talk to that person. Hey, yeah. get this guy a dollar. He's asking for money. You really should do that. And, you know, invest in his life. You don't hear that voice if you're too busy hearing all the other things that the world has you trying to do. Yeah. And then in doing stuff, there's that fear of man. Well, what if he rejects it? What if something happens that I don't want to or that's going to make me late to this appointment that I'm trying to be on time for. And, you know, the world just kind of works at you. It's like, no, not this time. I'll do it next time, God. Yeah. I just don't feel like this is the appropriate time to do that. Yeah. So you have to have that steel in your spirit. It's like, no, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. To actually take that. That's very good. That's a good segue in what I want to talk about next. But before I move on, does anybody else have something... From Beatitudes, yeah. Ben. These came out of Jesus' mouth. He wanted us to hear those things specifically. I think that is so much a part of our reading the Bible. Here's Jesus telling these people these different things. And to pay attention to, my goodness, how can you ignore that? Yep. And I think for his disciples, when they're first, when they're hearing this live yeah. on the mountain, you know, most of us we can't remember back to when we first heard these things. If you've been a Christian a long time, but some of these things, I think they would be wrestling with. What in the world? How can that be true? One thing about this list is that every one of these, God has to get involved for it to be true. I, I didn't mention it when I was going over inherit, but just as one example, when the meek are going to inherit the earth, when you inherit something, someone else has made that decision for you. It's usually based on relationship, but someone else has decided who's going to inherit. They may sometimes have conditions, but someone else makes that decision and follows through. They provide the things Whatever, in a typical case of someone who dies, they're providing their estate. You know, but it's their stuff they've decided that you will inherit. The earth belongs to the Lord, Psalm 24, verse 1. And he can make more <laughs> if he needs to. Um, yeah, very good, Ben. Anybody else? So on what John was talking about, um, focusing on others and... Uh, tying in, I mean, he was stemming from what you said, Brian, recognizing the opportunity. Jesus gives us two facts. I'm going to wrap up quickly here. I'm not going to really dwell on, on these. Uh, I do want to say something about losing saltiness. But just real quick, uh, if you're a kingdom person, Jesus says you are salt of the earth. If you're a kingdom person, Jesus says you are light of the world. If you don't believe that, it's going to affect how you act. If you do believe it, it will affect how you act. 
So it's important to deal with this. Do you believe it or not? Here I've got some things that salt does. Um, here I got a little bit about letting your light shine. It, it means doing good works that other people are then, when they see them, they're caused not to praise you, but to glorify God. And you can read these bullets. On, on the salt, I, I want to just end by saying, explaining this a little bit. For us, if we think of salt, it's a compound, it's a, what, a molecule, sodium chlorine, NaCl. And it is what it is. It doesn't lose its saltiness. It may have a chemical reaction where it changes and it isn't salt anymore. But salt is salt. Well, in their day, in the ancient world, and this was really probably true up to the Renaissance, um, salt was, for the most part, something that was mined, dug, or scraped off the ground somewhere. And it would have uh, gypsum and other minerals typically mixed in with it. For the Middle East, a major source of salt, and probably where all of it came from for Judea, was the Dead Sea. And there were salt marshes to the, that still are to this day to the southwest of the Dead Sea. And they would go out there and scrape salt off the ground. And there are now there are caves where today they mine salt uh, to the southwest of the Dead Sea. Well, um, so their salt would be mixed with impurities. And salt that was good salt would have a high sodium chloride NaCl ratio to the gypsum and minerals. So think of that as a high salt to impurity ratio. But their salt, if it got wet, it could. The, what actually happened if it got wet is that the salt would get washed away and you're left with the impurities. So the salt to impurity ratio goes down. Got a whole lot more impurities. Flip that around. Impurity to salt ratio goes up doesn't taste salty anymore. Um, they could sometimes have salt that came from out in the marshes. It's fresh salt, hadn't gotten wet or anything, but it's got a high impurity to salt ratio, and it doesn't taste salty. And so what they would do is they would literally throw it out, and they wouldn't throw it out where they want to grow anything. So think of your yard today, but you're living in the Middle East. You wouldn't throw it out where you want grass. You wouldn't throw it where you want a garden. You'd throw it in the path or on the road. I remember, so I don't know if anybody does, does anybody make your own ice cream anymore? When I was growing up, we, so some of you do, and it, it, when I was growing up, we made ice cream all the time. My dad liked to do it. He didn't do the hand crank. He had an electric plug-in thing. But at the end of it, you would have this salt, briny water in a container where he's been catching that. My dad would take that and pour it along the side of the house and down the driveway sides, places where instead of having to edge, it would just kill the grass so he wouldn't have to edge. Well, they did that kind of thing. They threw it on their roofs. They, they had A lot of their homes had dirt roofs, and they would throw it up there to keep stuff from growing, and it would help make the roof um, um, more water-resistant so they wouldn't have leak problems. Uh, that's what they would do with salt that lost its saltiness, which was really lots of impurities. Well, I was dwelling on this and thinking about putting myself in their shoes in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't say this, but it's implied in there, don't lose your saltiness. Kingdom people are salty, but there's a risk that kingdom people can lose their saltiness. You wouldn't be telling them that otherwise, right? Don't lose your saltiness. So I was thinking, well, what makes me salty? Okay, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Jesus hasn't died and risen from the dead. They don't have the New Testament yet. They have the Old Testament. So they have the Word of God, but they don't have the full Word of God. I think what was making them salty and what he's calling them to as kingdom people is their association with Jesus. As they come to grips with these things and they start flowing in their lives because of their association with Jesus, they're going to be salty. But later, some of his disciples left him over a hard teaching. You can read about it in John 6. They're going to lose their saltiness. 
In John 8, he tells those who believed in him that, how's it go? If you, if you know the truth, I've got to find it. John 8, because I'm going to botch it. It's about being his disciple, but he's saying it to those who believe in him. And the upshot is a bunch of them will leave him. Um, 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Uh, Being in association with Jesus made them salty before they had the Holy Spirit, before they had the New Testament. Right there, being with him. And as all that kingdom stuff happened. But if they left him... They would lose their saltiness. Well, that has a parallel for us, together with what I explained about impurities. For us as believers, we have the Holy Spirit. If you've been saved, you're always saved. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. But you can still lose your saltiness if you stop being in close association with Jesus. I think of what John said. I don't want you to take, if you, when, for what John was saying, missing an opportunity, that doesn't mean really that you've lost your saltiness, but that flowed out of losing that mindset, right? Well, you can picture if you stop spending time with Christ and you go months without time with Christ, you're going to have no mindset for reaching other people. You're going to miss all kinds of opportunities. You're not going to be salty. Salt, by the way, is something that tends to work behind the scenes, hidden, sort of in secret. We, we know it's there. We sprinkle salt on. But then it just kind of does its thing while you're eating the food or it preserves stuff. Light is out in the open. Boom, here's light. They work in different ways, but they work in parallel. So you can cover up your light. You can lose your saltiness. Staying close to Christ, pursuing Him. Chuck talked about laser focused on Christ. That keeps you salty. And then having the boldness to speak up to people, to do good deeds when the opportunity's there. That shines the light. So, on that note, I'm going to quit. I went a couple minutes too long. Um, we're going to sing a song, right? Is that right? Do we have a song to sing? Okay. We're going to sing a song. I had a few questions here, but they're at the back of the notes, so you